ladies and gentlemen. This podcast, Film Jerks, is truly one of the most spoiler-filled film podcasts ever recorded. It contains ridiculous opinions, which under no circumstances should be listened to by anyone that has a heart condition or anyone who is easily upset by film spoilers. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person, or parent of a young and impressionable child now listening, that you skip to the end of the podcast for our ratings and live your lives free of disagreeing with overtly opinionated people. You'll live longer. Film Jerks is a group where we, as a community, pick a film to watch, then discuss like little old ladies in a book club. Only our films have decapitations and nude slumber party pillow fights. If you wish to become part of the conversation and become a film jerk, go to the Facebook group and join. Film Jerks can be found on iTunes and Stitcher Smart Radio. Welcome to Film Jerks, the podcast where we look at films like little old ladies in a book club. Only our discussions have bathroom peep shows and on-screen flushing toilets. With me on the panel tonight is, of course, my co-host, the Lipstick Jerk. Hi, Angelique. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you? Doing great. I, of course, am your bow tie jerk. And uh, with us is returning guest, Daniel. Daniel, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. I don't know why I said your name in, in the form of a question. <laughs> like, Daniel? <laughs> my entire life. It's like when I was born, I was like, Daniel? Really? <laughs> going with that? Yeah, just roll with it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, with Daniel is also Scotty D. How are you, Scotty? I'm doing good. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being on the show. You give us respectability now. <laughs> I thought where you're going for respectability. You are so screwed. <laughs> also on the panel is Cole. Cole, how are you tonight? I'm doing. I'm glad to be here, man. I, I'm excited to talk about Psycho. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on the show. And also, uh, last but not least, of course, is Vaughn. How are you tonight, Vaughn? Well, the cops just woke me off off the side of the road, so I'm pretty ready to go. So <laughs> get that car started. <laughs> our Facebook group voted, and they decided to, for our discussion tonight, would be 1960s Psycho. Here we have a quiet little motel, when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. Can you have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. You know, this is the first place it looks like it's hiding from the world. I think that... we're all in our private traps. Clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. Is anyone at home? Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. Is anything wrong? Am I acting as if there's something wrong? She's not missing so much as she's run away. Put me down. 
you running away from? She looked like a wrong one to you. It's not as if she were a, a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. She wouldn't even harm a fly. Psycho is a psychological horror film directed and produced by Alfred Hitchcock. Let's talk about the opening scene where you basically get uh, Marion and Sam. They've got this get together at a hotel, which apparently they allude to is happening quite often. He has an ex-wife that's trying to break up with him. He's got alimony payments. Think about the time when this movie came out and think about the things that I mean, you would you could allude to a lot of stuff they have since, you know, the film noir resurgence and Humphrey Bogart, Jim Cagney, all that stuff. This stuff, though, was right in your face. Hitchcock began doing it. I'm not a big Hitchcock like student, so he's probably done this before in his other films. But this one was kind of like the first one that was pretty in your face about it, but not if I'm making sense with that. It's absolutely scandalous. Scene opens up and you've got a chick in her bra on bed with another man and they ain't married. Now, I'm not a historian, but wasn't it around about this time that Lucy and Desi couldn't even have they couldn't even share a bed? Mm-hmm. Okay, and so here we have a feature film where you've got a man and a woman, and they're not married in bed together, <laughs> and they're just openly talking about their affair. And what this is, what Hitchcock has done immediately with this film has he's already shown you the lurid nature of this, kind of like, and not kind of because I'm not comparing Pulp Fiction to Psycho, but if you think about it, when Pulp Fiction comes on and it gives you the definition of Pulp Fiction and it tells you pulp of, you know, wood substance, blah, 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 pulp, a lurid novel written, you know, for the sole purpose of, you know, just being filth. Hitchcock kind of set this film up like that. He already hits you in the face. To let you know that this is this is it's a morality play, but this isn't a morality play that you think this is going to be. So he's already pulled the rug out from under you and your expectations. That's all I can say. Like he's already set the stage for what kind of story this is going to be. You have no clue. This is the first five minutes of the movie, and you're already if you're a Puritan in the Bible Belt, you are disgusted. But (laughs) if you're intrigued by this film, you are hooked immediately. If you follow what I'm saying, the thing about uh, Hitchcock is he was just this master craftsman. It's what his uh, reputation is t- to this day, and he he actually always wanted to have a little bit more sex and violence than he was allowed in the movies, which is why finally, when the '70s rolled around, he did Frenzy, which. Ooh, you think Psycho is pretty graphic. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was in your face. And so what he had done before, though, is he was he would always joke around and he was always very playful with it and everything. It was even brought up in a documentary I was I had just watched about the movie is that, you know, just before this movie, he did his biggest movie ever. It's basically 
the movie North by Northwest, which is about as close to a Spielberg film as you're going to get before Spielberg, because it was just a total crowd pleaser from beginning to end. And he had to be really clever with how his little jokes, you know, there's a little joke where the, uh, they're coming out of the nose of Mount Rushmore. So he was making a joke, look at the actors, they're boogers. And the, the great ending has the two stars embracing. And then as it says the end, a train is going through a tunnel. <laughs> That's which is like now the classic cliche of you know oh they're porking, and um, <laughs> so this one so it was all like this suggestiveness and poking you in the ribs and winking and all this stuff, and this one just comes out right out and shows these people having a nooner in this uh, hotel room, and neither one of them is happy. You know it's not playful. It's not joking. It's Yes, we're having sex on the sly here, and it's boring. We're in a rut. We feel like we are stuck in this. And so it's it was very frank in the motivations of the characters. It was very frank in the subject matter, and it would continue on where things that we don't think twice about today must have been can't believe they're addressing this in the movie you know and this one unlike north by northwest this is not a big movie this was very low budget it was black and white it was done on the very cheap with a tv crew uh he basically hitchcock saw the aip movies and said i wonder if somebody what would happen if somebody did one of those but good and he did uh, you know and he did this you know and so it was very it felt really feeling low budget, feeling black and white, it actually felt a little, it wasn't glossy. It wasn't pretty. It was kind of seedy and seamy. And so I think that, yeah, and I think that definitely that these people also set themselves up because you're introduced to Marion Crane. You don't see the boyfriend again until like midway through the movie. Uh, to like the halfway point, but you're introduced to Marion Crane, and that this is the star of our movie, and it's not somebody who gets into a bad situation and pulls herself out. Now she's in a bad situation already, and it just gets worse. And you're meant to believe that it's going down one path, and instead it goes down another. In the next scene, we get to see her returning back to her office, and her boss comes in with this customer who wants to buy a bunch of land and property and, and some house for $40,000, which back then was quite a bit. And basically kind of sets up this, this thing that Scott was saying where they're, they're not, they're not very nice people and they're kind of forced into this situation. It's, it's an interesting predicament, but you know, all these opening sequences are really, as, as Scott said, kind of drawing you into her world making you see things from her perspective. You know, you're really beginning to feel a lot of things for her, not necessarily, you know, all good things. When people talk about Psycho, it's always, oh, you know, he, he kills a lead actress halfway through. It, it's so much more complex than that because she's a complex character and she has some tug and pull and you're just sucked in. You're, you're, he's putting you in her world and putting you in her shoes. And roughly halfway through the movie, uh, she's a, a goner and the narrative completely switches focus. So uh, yeah, these opening sequences are great. You know, her setup is fantastic and her, her performance is, is great. Marion Crane is, you know, one of the, the great horror characters. 
she's driving around trying to figure out what she's going to do. And she ultimately says, okay, I'm going to leave. I'm going to try to go as far as I can with this money. I'm taking the money. She comes across somebody. Um, I don't remember if it's her boss or someone that she works with at a stop sign at a light. The next scene would be her waking up with the cop. And the cop kind of follows her to the next town because it's very suspicious, even though back in those days, no offense to the women on the show, men, I mean, they still feel this way that, you know, if you see a woman passed out in a car, eh, you know, they just kind of got, you know, sick of life and they just decided to take a day off. And it's just like, oh, okay, we'll just follow them to the next place, see where they are, and we'll just hang out for a little bit. And it completely pushes up the tension because she's already kind of freaking out because she saw the boss. She knows what she's doing. It's completely the wrong thing to be doing. Um, but she wants to have some kind of future with this guy, which eh, he doesn't seem like a guy I want to spend another day with. I, uh, I agree with you, man. A dull, boring uh, dullard of a human being. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that 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 I that push right there with the cop waiting for her, her going to read the paper when she gets to the mechanic her kind of changing cars. It's just like she's trying to cover her tracks as best she can, even though she has, you know, clearly someone standing there looking at her. But the, the cop may or may not remember meeting a blonde haired woman. I mean, how many people does he see every day? You know, even if it is weirdly suspicious, you know, and it ultimately goes into the whole like riding in the uh, the rainstorm which is really great for a, a static shot. You know, it's supposed to, it's made to look like she's driving, but we all know how Hitchcock is with those kind of scenes. He'd rather have somebody sitting in a small in a car with rear projection going. And in this it's just like they were like, "All right, let's just get as much water as we could find and just dump all of it on this car and we'll just we'll film for a couple of minutes. No big deal. We'll just yeah. This film was made for like no money and on a TV crew and everything like that. You know, he saw the films that Castle was doing, uh, William Castle was doing, and seeing how well they were doing. It was like, I can pull that off. And he was in TV for a couple of years in between this, doing other, t- you know, big budget films. But he was working on television, and he knew the crew that he had with the t- with the TV show was doing could do this. So I was like, all right, let me let's let's push it. Let's let's make a cheapy film, and he banked it out really well. That leads us to her chance encounter with. The Bates Motel and Norman Bates. You see this kind of creepy kind of guy, but he's not necessarily that creepy. He is kind of charming in a way. Well, back then, we didn't have the measuring stick of creepy. Now, meeting Norman Bates today, I'd have noped right the hell out of there. Not really? <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, come have sandwiches with me, and the op- no, thank you. You know what? I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta return some videotape. <laughs> <laughs> Women had a different, you know, like, oh, he's just being sweet. She's on the lamb. She has to stay somewhere. She can't risk getting stopped by another highway patrolman or, or woken up by another one because, you know, cops talk. And, like, you know, on the way to the hotel, she's hearing the conversation in the mind that the, the car salesman might be having with that officer. You know, she's, it's critical. She's done something pretty bad and needs to get out of Dodge. But he's a weirdo, and you can tell. Lock your door. But that doesn't help much in a hotel when the manager has the keys. Let's continue with the dinner scene and and talk about that. And we we get to we get to hear mother for the first time. 
Norman! Norman! You won't have that whore in my house eating my sandwiches. <laughs> that that right there kind of turned the tide, you know. She's got a soft spot for him because, you know, she thinks his mom's a bee. Is so that that scene that was does that endure you to the Norman character as having this? Oh, he's his mom yells at him, and does that make him an enduring character to you? Well, you gotta. It's hard for us to put ourselves in the mindset of. I mean, was there any single person here when the first time you saw the Psycho that didn't know the story of Psycho? A lot of us probably knew that Norman was the psycho of the movie. You try to put yourself in this frame of mind of somebody who didn't know. I mean, anybody who went into this, not everybody knew what was going to happen in this movie. They knew they were going to meet a psycho at one point, but who is it? And uh, so it's hard to like put yourself in the mind of somebody who's not expecting this giant you know, shoe to drop in the shower. But you're watching this and you are kind of, you do feel for him. And I love this scene where where they're having the dinner. Uh, and I love it basically because of, there's a great conversation between the two. The dialogue is great. And Anthony Perkins is so good in this part. He's, you know, he was often typecast, but he was a really fantastic actor. And uh, he was great. And he, of course, the reason why he got typecast after this is because this is a flawless performance. There's ways that this is shot where he's talking about the mother and you see the, he's got the taxidermy all over the place. And you see the birds over him like birds of prey like they're all like there's this shadow of this bird of prey that is always looming over him as he's speaking about her and that kind of unspoken cinematic flourish by hitchcock that really endeared me to him and you're kind of like ah geez you know they're really wasn't a chance for this guy that's a thing you know so you kind of feel you're you're endeared to the point of saying there really wasn't a chance for him but i mean let's face it at the same time it's hard to see him as a total victim because i never was able to watch this film not knowing that he is not the victim he is the antagonist and so it's the poor it's poor marion crane who, who did something really selfish and stupid and found herself in too deep and she's the victim here of course because right away you think okay now she's gonna try to get herself out of this uh, spot and you think things are finally looking up for her she seems happy for the first time and boom it's like at the cruelest moment. Yeah. So uh, it's hard for me to actually say, oh, he's just a nice guy. It's, you kind of feel about Norman the way uh, people talk about the so-called nice guys these days. Nice guys really aren't that nice <laughs> when they say things like, if it's a nice guy, but he's just, but he's still just trying to use you, he's not a nice guy. You know, it's that kind of thing where he seems like a nice guy, he isn't. You know, I, it's hard to feel for Norman, feel bad for him because he's a murderer. Mm -hmm. But people go crazy and it's not right. But growing up in Wisconsin, where it seemed like every week there was a new serial killer story that would break. I, I get it. There, there are weird people who just snap because their lives are horrible and they've never been taught to deal with the essentials of life, such as sex, such as death. 
that it seemed like everybody had their leather face story. I knew a guy who knew him in a mental health facility and this and that. But in my case, I was actually literally a couple people removed from Ed Gein. I mean, Plainfield was not far from the town where I was living. And that story when I grew up in the 80s was all over. I mean, I, I had talked to people who had lived in that town. And by all accounts, Ed Gein was a nice guy. When you're in a small area, you kind of accept people more for their quirks because you're all a family and you're like, okay, this fucked up thing happened to this guy all those years ago. So just let him be. You know, he's a little weird. He lives out there. Just let him be and he won't hurt anybody. And that that's who Ed Gein was. I mean, everybody knew he was weird. They just didn't want to mess with him. They just figured, well, let's leave him alone and just let him play out his life in that little barnyard and nobody will ever be the wiser. But unfortunately there was something deeper going on there, which is sexual repression, which is also a huge motif in this film, I believe, which is part of why Hitchcock probably opened it up in a bedroom. I mean, he never mm. addresses the, the incest thing directly necessarily, you know, it, it's there. It, it's, it's sexual repression and growing up in the Midwest it does do damage to your mind. I mean, sexual repression is not good. You gotta, we have to teach our kids and we've got to help the young people, you know, understand that part of themselves before it mutates. And when you're living in desolation, surrounded by, you know, your relatives or your only friends often and, and some of the people in your town, it's just a breeding ground for madness. Um, so, no, he's not necessarily an endearing character, which is why I'm sure they cast Anthony Hopkins to make it endearing because he's so brilliant. They tried for it with Vince Vaughn a bit, but I just think he was just too big. He was just too formidable. Uh, the notion of, like, the small, quirky guy in, in a hotel, I think Perkins just, like, nailed it, you know. So it's, it's endearing because of the performance, but obviously, you know, the character is psychopathic killer. So hard getting past that. I, I agree with most of the things you say. The, the thing, the thing with the character is that he's completely relatable as a guy who's being pushed to his limits. Yes. It's all built within himself, but you don't really find this out until the very end of the film. He's a guy you can kind of relate to if you had to deal with, an overbearing mother or just a family in general that kind of picks and prods at every little thing you do. And you can only take so much of that. He picks his words properly. He knows how to speak to people. When people start kind of questioning, coming to the place to question about, have you seen this woman? Even when people start to kind of go into his home, he has to defend everything. He has to keep everything the same way it's always been. And it just, it pushes him to the brink. It just... This this woman coming into his area kind of makes something snap that he hasn't ever done before. We are, you know you never really mentioned in the in the movie that he may have killed someone before this. It's just that this is the kind of the catalyst that starts everything to go downhill for him. But but yeah, to be honest, when like um was it McFarlane Toys is putting out those figures. The first one I picked out was a Norman Bates one where he was dressed up like his mother. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> nice. So. Awesome. I have the so. Funko Pop. Yeah, I've got that one too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I can I can definitely kind of get behind it. Uh, you know, I first saw this movie when I was like, I don't know, eight, ten, maybe. I was young, and uh, my grandmother, she was like a. 
TV guide, Hollywood follower. Like she knew, she knew everything about everybody who was doing what, when and where, and who had done what and who was on drugs and not and worship Satan and dressed up in women's underwear. Like that dude from Hogan's heroes. And <laughs> I mean, like, she knew everything about it. Anyway, say that to say when I watched psycho, I knew Norman Bates was the killer, but I still didn't know anything about the movie. Like when I'm first watching it and, you know, he's actually a believable character. Like I see him and I'm like, oh, you know, wow, he's kind of dorky, kind of nerdy. But there was something compelling about it because, you know, as a kid watching these older movies, unless it was, you know, a straight up horror film, I didn't care. You know, they're generally boring. But this one, there was something intriguing. I guess it was the way he was acting. It was almost, <laughs> I guess this is funny. It was almost sympathetic. It's like, wow, that dude's kind of like me. <laughs> but, when I hear him, when I heard his mom talking, and then of course, not didn't she actually says whore, doesn't she? Like, I mean, again, scandalous using <laughs> kind of language in a film, you know. But when I heard Norman's mother talking, I thought she, I thought like that was his mother. Like, I had no idea. Let me put it that way. When I first saw this film, I there was no nothing had been spoiled for me other than the fact that I knew he was the killer, but I had no idea why or how leading up to it or nothing for all i knew it was kind of like texas chainsaw massacre whereas this nice dude mr face you know leather face is just at home minding his own business and these nosy ass teenagers keep coming in trespassing scaring the hell out of him i mean what's a man supposed to do of course he's just gonna go ballistic trying to defend himself i mean the whole time he was just trying to practice his taxidermy and he's asking <laughs> ruining his time and scaring the death out of him. i mean for real so I had no clue about Norman Bates, it, and that was kind of cool that I was able to experience that. <laughs> so for as an endearing character, I admit it. I mean, he kind of was. I just, looking at it from that perspective, I could see it. And it, for the briefest of instances, yeah, it was kind of sympathetic. I mean, I'll have like a overbearing mother type thing. I don't know about that situation, but I've known people like that. And so, yeah, for from that scene, I could kind of go with it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm naive. I, I I'm gullible. I I go for yay. He's he's the kind of the underdog thing, and oh wow, he's kind of a pervert now. Uh, <laughs> oh god. Uh, <laughs> oh god. <laughs> That, that was the part where like half the panel here actually started to relate to him. So. <laughs> <laughs> been on a date with me. So like, well, he's key. West. Oh God. Oh God. You <laughs> <laughs> don't have to be lonely at cyclesonly.com. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this does lead us into the, the shower scene. I think the shower scene is big enough for all of us to talk about. It, it is like one of the penultimate, <laughs> the penultimate slasher death scene and something that very few people have come close to without being, you know, purely exploitative. There's an art to it. There's a drive to it. There's a uniqueness to it. There's a point of view to it. And it, it's just almost like the work of a poet. I mean, there is amazing techniques in that scene, many employed right down to, I don't remember what exactly Hitchcock said he was stabbing, 
but I, I, it was a piece of fruit, a watermelon or something. Mm -hmm. So in, in my film, I used a pumpkin and I, you know, I'm never one to pat myself on the back, but by God, I'm glad I, I, I studied psycho. My movie's nothing like psycho, but that's the sound you want. There's nothing that's going to come close to, other than stabbing into a squash or a watermelon or, or a pumpkin or something. I mean, it's, that was a stroke of genius on, on, on his part to do it that way. It's, it's just an amazing scene. I don't, I don't want to talk over anybody else. It's just one of those, those scenes that changed horror for better or worse. So many people not only try to replicate that scene, but the film in general and fall flat on their faces simply because they don't have a point of view. They don't have a point of view to the material. They're focusing on the blood and the knife going downward, and there's not their own personal take on it. Well, let me let me back up. With the whole thing with this is that you're introduced to this character, played with Janet Lee, and you're kind of forced in her predicament. And it is not until 48 minutes into the film when she dies off. It's just like, wow, because you're, you think it's just going to be this drama about this woman stealing money to kind of get, run away with her, with her boyfriend and start a new life. And then she gets killed off. And, and even before that, she starts to like realize that what she's done is wrong. She's going to go back tomorrow and return everything and kind of deal with the consequences. And then we get this huge like knife in the back uh, <laughs> that completely screws up all her plans. And, the handful of things that how Hitchcock was able to hold that off and kind of keep the suspense of this with the, the viewing public was that he pulled tricks like William Castle did, like where he had stuff like the fright break and all that other things. His was, okay, well, I want to keep this secret secret. So you have to show up in the movie. You can't be more than 10 minutes later than the film starting or people will not be allowed into the theater because I do not want the surprise to be given away and when you leave the theater don't tell your friends just tell them to go see the movie and that was part of the production the promotions the in the trailers and whatnot and it was a gimmick that kind of became what we do nowadays constantly it's something that moviegoers are constantly going to they go they go at the time it's supposed to um before this film came out moviegoers would go in whenever they felt like it and they would stay and watch the next screening of the film and find out what they missed yeah, you know that would have pissed me off so bad, but I know that's true. <laughs> but, but movie, movie, the movie going audience was so much different. They treated movies much differently than we do now, and because of Psycho, it started a trend and it became a norm. And because of that, and because of people's kind of like, "Ooh, this is a really great thing. This is a jewel that I got to see. I'll keep it to myself until all my friends get to see it, and then we'll all bullshit about it." Just like a lot of people do nowadays with big films. Especially if it's got a really big twist, like Fight Club, where it's got this crazy twist at the end, and you don't want to tell anybody because you just want to say, "Hey, go, go see the movie, yeah, go, yeah. go watch it, and then when you get back, or I'll come with you, we'll go see it together, I'll go see it again, and then, and then you're leaving, you're walking home or walking to your car, you're you're sitting there freaking losing your mind about it, and that's how this film kind of got garnered such a huge popularity and such a huge box office because because of just that whole twist like dead center in the middle the movie is an hour and 48 minutes and it's just right dead center in the middle where this happens and then you twist your the story has to has to go to norman because you have no lead anymore because the lead is, is laying there motionless on the on the floor of this bathroom 
the pan down to her face and then pan away and pan back. It's just like whole. <laughs> it's only a couple seconds, but it's it hits you like a ball peen hammer to the head because you know it's like oh this is real like this there's no playing around. She is dead. Like there's no life. There's no movement. And then when he comes running like barreling from the house, like he knows something happens and he's trying to mistake it that he he wasn't there. And the bad part about watching this in HD is that in the shadow, you can kind of see the remnants of a, of a male face in there. Um, this is why I've always, when I, when I've seen this film before, when I watched, I rather watch this on TV, like when Turner, uh, classic movie shows it or something like that, because you could still not mistake. You still can't see that. It's a, it's a human, like a, it's a male or a woman. You still can't, the shadow is dark enough when you can't see with the, with the HD of this, the whites and the blacks are so white and so black that it gives off just that teeny bit of pulling the shadow away from the face that you can actually kind of tell that it's a male, which sucks. And that's the bad part about like HD in the time we live in nowadays. Um, we've talked about a lot in this film, a lot of the, uh, Dano, I think brought it up with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the fact that that film, there was, there's only one or two deaths. But if you watch the version that's come out in the last two or three years, when they, when they actually went and cleaned up the version, you can clearly see Leatherface killing, um, kid, the kid in the freaking wheelchair. You can clearly see it. Yeah. Franklin. I mean, I mean, bravo Leatherface finally kill that guy. But, <laughs> But you can, clear, you can clearly wow. see the you can clearly see the spray of blood spl- slicing off the chainsaw blade as it's going as he's killing as he's killing Franklin, and you couldn't see that for the longest time because all the versions we got to see before that weren't really good. I, I understand if you're seeing this the first time, you're going to be like, "Oh, what the hell just happened?" But if you watch it again, you can tell that that's a male face there. Thing about losing the character in the mid- middle way through the movie that would be a shock today. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it would be. I would love to see someone try it, especially if it's someone such a big actor or actress, where they get killed off or they just disappear. I like, want to say like that somebody story- did it recently, and I can't think of who it yeah. was. Their, sto- their storyline ends, and we have to automatically start with someone who's in the vicinity of this character. You know well, what the, I mean? And the great thing is, is that you know, what the thing is though is that uh, it goes back to what we, were, what we were talking about earlier. Is that Hitchcock had this. A reputation for being a na- um, massive uh, a natural craftsman. It's like okay, you're gonna see this thing, you're gonna be scared, mm-hmm. and you're gonna be. He's the master of suspense, so he's gonna really push it to the edge. But don't worry, when it's all over, everything's gonna wrap up nicely, and right. it'll be fine. And so here we have this story. Like okay, it's a story, and Janet Lee's the star, and it's the story about this woman that's embezzled this money, and mm-hmm. I guess it's gonna kind of go on from that. And we find out, and like midway through the movie, without any warning whatsoever, he kills the main character and says, oh no, all of that, none of that matter. The money doesn't matter. The embezzling doesn't matter. She now doesn't matter except as a device to serve the rest of the movie and Mm -hmm. just very bluntly, very viciously, and now the audience is left wondering, wait a minute, (laughs) I was actually kind of confident that I was in the hands of this artist and craftsman who (laughs) still kind of had my best interest at heart. Now, the psycho is probably the guy behind the camera. (laughs) For the the most part, when people died off in films up until this point, 
they were secondary characters. They were never really anybody who was pivotal to the overall story. And a film and this film just kind of pushes that like like let's change it up. You get introduced to these new characters automatically. You know, you get people snooping around as soon as people start making assumptions that this woman never returned. And she, you know, she clearly wasn't that kind of person just to disappear. Yeah. You know? And her sister knows it. Her boyfriend knows it. And they go and go and they look into where were her last moments, even like and, and at a time in the 60s, late 50s was very tough to do was you you didn't have like what we have now where like everybody's phone can track where you are you know i mean if she wanted to disappear she could have just disappeared it's lucky that the cop found her and woke her up and followed her into the next town so you have those people and then you you the car she was driving was very kind of you know noticeable so people would say oh yeah i saw that car go here Back then, people were very much more open to kind of answer your questions without any kind of hostility towards you. And these people, like, they just kind of walk into the right situations at the right times. The way Jaws ruined the beach, this ruined showers for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. (laughs) There's not a whole lot of blood. You know, there couldn't be. Of course, back then, you know, if you... You want to get it released you can't you know just the the little hints and the splashes and seeing it run down through the water down the drain that's just that's a thing of beauty you can tell that's not a woman that's doing the stabbing i i, I get lost for words and just because i just i love it so much you know like everybody else i know knew you know when i was a kid norman bates is the bad guy he killed somebody in the shower. But Hitchcock was so... He, he was just the master. Like, everything he touched was golden. And this is no exception to that. It's just beautiful, and you just sit there, and you just, you know, hold your face or clutch your pearls if you wear them, and just ride with it until she hits the floor. <laughs> Well, I, I, I heard uh, read someplace it going through the rating system and the board like said, nope, there's there's too much nudity in the scene. And th- he basically they sent it back and he just sat on it. He didn't actually change it. He sat on it. He sent it back in. And then the people that originally on the board said that it was uh, too much. They said, OK, it's good now. And the other people that had originally said that there wasn't anything or now said, oh, there's too much. So it's just, it's just a crazy, crazy system that they have. It's so it's insane. Their system is insane. They 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 ran they they run a crazy ship. I don't get it, man. They do, and there's and there's a lot, and there's also a lot that doesn't pass muster today. I watched the movie Grizzly this week, and I knew, you know, you know that we see every now and then we see old PG movies because PG was always meant parental guidance. It was actually a real rating; it wasn't a kids film. <laughs> and then we'd see, you know, we, every now and then you see one where you're like, oh, well, gosh, that's a little bit harsh for a PG. I watched Grizzly, and I was like, Jesus. <laughs> Like there's there's like a little three year old who gets his arm ripped off. I'm like, oh my god! But 
if you have to go, if you ever like went uh, to school or for film or anything else, and you took film studies classes, you study Psycho, and you study the shower scene, and you uh, there are, are books written on just the, that scene, and it's because you can do it. And there's so much that is suggestive. There's stuff that's blurred and everything. I did finally see the thing where they got where they did talk about the actual one shot where you do see the knife go in because there's always this talk no you never see the knife go into uh marion crane it's always suggested if you saw it then that was just your mind tricking you into saying you saw it well bullshit no i mean you there's actually clearly a shot <laughs> that looks like the the knife is just piercing her stomach uh how it was done though was that the knife was pressed up against her stomach. So, of course, you know, this fold of the stomach goes over part of the knife. And then they took the knife away. Oh, and just reversed it. They reversed the shot, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it happens so quick that you don't see it. <laughs> Technically, they're right, because there there isn't a scene where it actually does pierce. So he could say, you know, he could say that all along and be telling the truth. As a kid, I'd watch it like, wow, shower scene. I love the strings. The Bernard Herman score, I mean, is just yeah. that's a touchstone for any composer. The fact that you can do a full movie score with minimalism using the strings like that. I mean, <laughs> Hans Zimmer is what he is because of Bernard Herman. It's all because of this film, because of this, the composition of being able to layer emotions with strings. This shower scene, watching it last night, when I say it, it's going to sound mean, but it is true. It's almost like a blueprint for sadism. It is Hitchcock has spent this entire film <laughs> for 48 minutes from the opening scene. And because now having talked about it, now I can actually think about it. He has worn you down from the first title card. He has worn you down and you didn't even realize it. Whenever I'm saying it's scandalous when he opens the film up, think about the people, the movie going public at the time that have watched this film. He has hit them square right between the eyes with his fist right time the movie starts because he's already hit you with adultery. He's already hit you with sex, just sexual content right in front of you, right in front of your face. He is rubbing your nose in the filth of morality that people didn't talk about. Polite society didn't talk about, but it was there. He has taken you right then and there. And what all that did is just like slapping you in the face. He just, you know, hits you in the face and you're still stinging from that. But as it goes on, you get theft and the money and you're still stinging a little bit, but then eventually you're not feeling it anymore. So what does he do? Takes everything away from you. And he shows you a slow, methodical. Now, granted, this is kind of frantic, the way that he's stabbing her. I agree with Angelique. You can tell it's a man because a woman would be far more vicious and cruel and make you feel every inch of that blood. <laughs> but what he has done is he has taken everything from you, and he has shown you that. And he has killed your entire morality right in front of your eyes. And he has taken that the whole film and everything that he has done to you up into that point. You're just you're he's just playing with you. Now I don't know if he did this on purpose. I think it was kind of sort of he did it on purpose, and it was a happy accident that he was able to work 
circumstantially. In other words, maybe he didn't have this entire methodology planned out quite exactly, but he was able to see, well, because I did this, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do this. And he is just toying with your emotions so much so that this shower scene, like I said, it's just a blueprint for statism. It is known. I don't, I say known. It just, it wasn't he impotent. Like he could not physically get off with this. And I think a lot of that goes into the scene. So there, his emotions are heightened so much so that I think that lends to the cold brutality of this. Not that he hated women, no implications like that. I'm just saying that his emotions were so wound up and so razor sharp. He was able to give this scene the brutality that it needed. Because again, remember, we had not seen that movies had not shown this, this cold, like I said, just cold, sadistic brutality. So much so, whether you saw the knife go in or not, top billing, and she's gone. And one hellacious actor, I might say, because, I mean, that just, when I watched it last night, that was cold. It just, this whole scene is chilling. And just minimal blood. You don't ever see all that much. You don't have to. You're hearing the screams. She is scream queen. We have the term scream queen because of her. And the fact that she just falls over dead staring at the camera i still don't know how they did that i'm sure i've heard how they did that if that was she was just corpsing that well regardless it was effective because just like the audience we're just sitting there staring at her as her life is just slowly ebbing away just like ours it's it's hitting your spinal column you don't hear it you feel it the same way with the knife you don't see it you feel it in the same way with everything the only thing you see is Janet Lee dead? And then <laughs> on to <the> movie B, <laughs> that nice young Norman feller. How's his mother doing? We didn't mention her black underpants, though. Oh, yes. Well, that's the, there's symbolism involved because at the beginning of the film, she has white. Uh, she has a white bra and and a white kind of skirtish type of thing. And then in the later in the in this scene, after she has embezzled money, she now has black. Mm-hmm. So it's supposed Holy to be. Holy holes, we're black underpants, Norman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to continue on with the scene where, where Norman Bates meets up with the private investigator named Milton Arbogast. I think that when he comes in, he knowing that there's something up, but Norman's able to kind of really keep it hidden. And they kind of, yeah, they do. They're able to kind of battle back and forth. And it's, a, it's, a, it's overall, like he, he knows, yeah, there's, there's something there. Yeah, he's not telling me all the truth, but I have to figure it out, you know, and he makes his uh, that way up to the house, which, you know, isn't always so great because it always seems like the be- worst parts of this film happen, except for generally death. Most of the ba- a lot of the bad stuff happens when people go into the house. <laughs> when he gets it, it's just a beautiful, spectacular shot. It's, it's, a, it's a it's a constant thing that Hitchcock uses that. That scene where it is, you know, him sitting on like he he used it and saboteur. He used it in uh, North by Northwest, where it's a guy pretty much sitting on a on a on a in a kind of a modified green screen of what the time of at the time what it was, where it's just a chair and it's just it's just the camera falling backwards with him and a zoom. Yeah, 
it looked yeah. awesome it did it looked like whoa yeah. didn't look natural but it looks cool it did yeah but it, it looks all it looks great yeah yeah um, and then and then you and then you get an, you get another scene of norman's uh usual hangout the swamp oh. uh, the place where he really likes to be quiet and uh you know just think about things that's the most like pudding um oatmeal induced swamp i've ever seen like, I thought it you was know, a tar, tar pit. I really, the first time I saw it, yeah, I like, thought, "What the tar pit?" <laughs> yeah, like quicksand, movie quicksand, which yeah, you know, we've all we've all found out nowadays that that stuff really isn't as bad um, or real as uh, the movies have always told us. In in the novel, there is a scene where Norman has a a quicksand scene where uh, he was going to like something like he was going to turn in his mother, and then he he uh, ends up seeing her going into quicksand and then suddenly uh. she changes into him which is kind of foreshadowing and so it's it's kind of cool that you said quicksand because maybe they were inspired by that a little bit yeah so yeah yeah i mean like i've i've read stuff with the the writer of the screenplay where he where after a certain point after they started actually writing adapting the from the book that hitchcock like never wanted him to reference the book and like and just with the character himself because it's not even the character in the movie isn't really the character that we get in the book. It's much, you know, you get this kind of schlubby, fat, um, greasy kind of dude in the book. And then in the movie, you get this, you know, very, you know, attractive. I mean, you know, Anthony Perkins is an attractive man. No, you know, don't get me wrong, but he's very nebbish and he's very quiet. Um, and it's a complete opposite of what the book gives you. Uh, now we get to uh, introduced to marion's sister lila and uh again we get to see sam sam returns the hero oh sam <laughs> the hero who isn't yeah i don't like him thank you i really don't he's kind of a jerk like i think that's the whole you know but you you can kind of and... get behind why she was like ooh, <laughs> like, like she was like oh i like you <laughs> like, no, i mean you know because he was like because he look at him like he's like ooh, but i mean i can deal with your stupidity and your roughness i mean you're probably good in bed oh wait you are good in bed because that's how we started the film you know you you did me before i ran away and it's like ooh, i can keep doing this and he's just yeah he's just like a a, a dunderhead it's like uh <laughs> Not just a dinnerhead, but he's a jerk. I mean, yeah, she wants an actual legitimate relationship with him, and the minute she starts talking about him, like, ah, no, 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 you know, all typical men, except for the ones excluded in this podcast. Yeah, they're all like, oh, oh no, 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 I don't like that. I, I, I you, you, you stand behind me, I stand in front. <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. Don't get me started. Don't yeah. get me started. <laughs> Usually I demand that my male walk ten feet behind me. So. <laughs> no, but um, Lila's a neurotic. <laughs> I haven't heard from my sister. Well, she's a grown woman. Hey, you were gonna be in Tucson for two weeks selling stuff or buying something. I don't know. Go away. Leave me alone. <laughs> no, I, I understand. You know, back then. People could disappear, and that that was kind of a big deal. But even in the Harbor story, you know, Marion's been missing. Sam's just like, oh well, eh, you know, she's not here. Bye. Do you think no he was kind deal. of happy, like like he uh-uh. he wanted her to really be missing? The only reason why he really wanted her was for that money. 
No. He had no clue. He had no clue. And then when he figures out about the money, like, oh, even still, I'm going to be saddled with this broad. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> There's not really a redeemable character in the film, except for the, the sheriff and his wife. <laughs> Oh come on! The operator was she. She 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 did what she was supposed to do. She was like awesome. She connected her, the sheriff to the house. I mean, geez. Yeah, well, yeah. She's okay. redeemable. Okay, there's three. There's okay. Three. <laughs> my bad. Putting up my dukes. All right. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I always liked Martin Balsam's character. I liked him as a detective. I thought, oh, okay, now the hard-nosed detective is going to be the one to solve the... Oh, nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no which such is, luck, man. Which is the best scene in the... Which is actually my my pick for the best scare in the movie. Ditto! I yeah. was just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> because it, that is completely... Even after we've been through this, it's completely unexpected because it's just a master aerial shot. And just out of the corner of the screen, boom! <laughs> <laughs> yes. It looks so creepy because it's like, oh my god, what's coming? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and then you got that tumble down the stairs, you know, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> More like a tap dance down the stairs. I mean, it's was doing one of those like uh the russian kick bands things like it was doing it was like <laughs> wilson and dragula ben loving it it's like, <laughs> i am count three <laughs> oh we already mentioned that arborgast uh, does buy it uh and that leads of course lila and sam to go and investigate on their own they do get the sheriff involved but the sheriff is kind of oh we do get we do get some backstory from the sheriff about Norman and Mrs. Bates. And we find out for the first time in the film that Mrs. Mrs. Bates was killed 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a, interesting. Were you guys shocked by that revelation? Uh, well, I actually, you probably didn't because you already knew what the story was going to be. I didn't. Well, good. Uh, yeah. I, I actually didn't. When I first saw Psycho, I didn't know. Well, here's the thing. I knew it was based on Ed Gein. So in that respect, I guess I knew it. But the ending is still so well done that it is shocking. I mean, it, it, it really comes up on you, especially just, of course, the composition of the shots and the way Hitchcock, that chair turns around and the reveal of the skull. It just goes to show you, as Scott said earlier, his directorial flourishes. Because look at Van Sant's version almost the exact same shot it has no power none yeah. at least not to me it's like flat soda <laughs> yeah it's like you know what it reminded me of was uh the ending of planet of the apes which i also saw later in like the original and my brain had, I had just picked up bits and pieces from my elders it's so well done it, it, hitchcock really just nails that ending and a lot of it is is perkins performance as well the way his face is just frozen in mm -hmm. this in in hideousness he, he he's gone mad i mean it's it lives up to its title no hitchcock hitchcock really paid the sucker off man everything mm -hmm. is leading up to that point until the overly uh i mean the ending is a bit too long like the final with the, the psychiatrist 
goes on and on yeah. and on. And but on with and that on. whole psychiatrist thing, that stuff was all kind of new at the time. So. That's true. That's true. It is so very explain, true. And nowadays, it feels very kind of weak and like an easy way to get or you know, wrap the whole film up. But back then, it was such a it was such a new construct. Good um, point. Very good yeah. point. So it's just like, it, but like when I first saw the film. I was told, you know, I was kind of in midway through the film, but I was told like something really crazy happens. And then when you get introduced to the sheriff and he tells, oh, yeah, by the way, Norman lives out there by himself. His mother died a handful of years ago. And it's like, so like you get another piece of the puzzle gets added to it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, oh, that makes more sense. And then like this and that, and the, you know, and it kind of like, ooh, then who's up there with him? Is he? Is he is he messing with someone else? Is it psychosis or this or that? And like when I saw this, I was a little kid. It wasn't like it wasn't one of these things where you're you're thinking about. Oh, let me think. Was Freud involved with this? No, it's like no. I was like, oh wait, that means his mom is dead. Like, you know, like who's the guy? Who's the lady dressed up in the granny panties? Like, what's going on? Uh, you know. <laughs> so so that was kind of like ooh, you know, it's a big ooh to me. And then you know when you start getting. When they when they go to the place and they're all creeped out by him because they know he's kind of a weirdo. I mean, he gets books to his house. I don't know what those are, but he, he reads them. And it's like, <laughs> oh no, he's a weirdo. Oh god, he's literate. Oh god. Ah. Um. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a young, attractive hermit. You know, I don't know if you ladies want to go up there. You know what that? You know what those are for times of the fifties? Young, attractive hermits. He's a gay man. That's what they're trying to say. He's gay. Mm-hmm. Which is what, um, one of, probably one of the reasons why, even though it was not out in the open, why they cast Anthony Perkins is that it was not out in the open, but there were always rumors yeah. and stuff from the he beginning. Did see that walk up those stairs. When you when you see him running back to the ha- from the house to the downstairs to see her body, you can clearly say, "Oh, look, he's a jo- look at his jaunty fellowness." Like he's he's definitely trying to make it look like, "Oh, I can run," but no, you were never really. You were not allowed on track, no. One of the things that gets me about this is you were trying to mention this about, like, the town and that, uh-huh. oh, he's up in this place by himself and everything. Like that. That's the thing. I mean, like, back uh, in the 60s, this was around the time when you were seeing, you know, all these highway expansions that were linking yeah. all the roads of the country together and all these places that didn't get on the highway they all kind of fell away and everything like that. But you got to think that this is like the thing is that always link our country together geographically is that it's not all cities. It's a lot of small town. And it, and it kind of really gets into that because if she hadn't fallen asleep and fell off, off the highway, if she hadn't had that rainstorm, if she hadn't saw that one place in the middle of nowhere and it seems like she's in this netherworld but our country was linked by all these netherworlds it's always something interesting i find about the the world i always have to live in a city you know i don't drive or anything like that so i have to have everything right you know accessible right there but most people don't live this way they live in like suburbs they live in small towns all across the country it really feels like she has ended up in this other world when she goes off that road but she's not in another world she's in a place where there are thousands of Bates hotel motels in the entire country but 
it might as well be on Mars for all the strangeness that occurs. I always found that very interesting about this movie is that it's not it's not linking this other world. It's linking a world that was part of ours and forgotten. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. And we get this nice little explanation of how Norman Bates is no more and that the mother personality is essentially taken over. And we get this last scene where we see Norman Bates, his face, and, and he, he's having this inner dialogue. And mother suggests that it, it's not her. She would never hurt a fly. It's really Norman. And she's, she's just going to do this to protect him. Do you think that it is really the mother persona that did the murders or was it actually Norman Bates and that the mother persona just basically wiped out Norman Bates as the final protection to, to keep the kid from, from going to jail. I honestly don't know. Like I seriously, and I, I guess that's just a credit to the story is the chilling ambiguity of it because it's actually both on the one hand you could say, well, yeah, it was just as the doctor described, you know, it was, it was Norman Bates who had – he killed the people. And as we found out, there had been others, you know, that he had killed. And he did it and blocked it from his mind. And the way that he copes with that trauma is that his mother's personality had taken over. So much so that it was – he removed himself entirely from the situation. Norman was able to act because it was his mother. He was hiding – safe in the arms of his mom while this other stuff was happening. But then on the other hand, it could very well have been his mom protecting Norman because didn't want that whore being in you know his house. <laughs> so it was his mom taking care of the situation, telling Norman to go to his room. She would go and handle it. And every now and then would let Norman come out, you know, for his cheese sandwich. And she mm-hmm. took the crust off of it. And, <laughs> you know, she, oh, go back to your room, Norman. There's another whore coming to the motel. <laughs> so it honestly it was either one. The way that it was describing, you know, like you said, whenever she, the inner dialogue that he's having, that, you know, it's his mom talking, but it's Norman Bates just sitting there looking around. You can, you can see that what's going on in his mind. But I really can't say one way or another, you know, which personality it was that was actually doing it. And I actually like that ambiguity because it's still, once again, it keeps you guessing. He has, Hitchcock has worn you down the first half of the movie and then just lured you along, just giving you that thrill. And then at the end, really does it matter? And I, that he might have done that on purpose. You know, it's like, well, who did it? Was it the mom? Was it Norman? You know, I can hear Hitchcock. I was like, does it matter? You know, <laughs> and I, I just like the ambiguity of it. And I mean, I don't know. Somebody else probably knows better, but that's that's what I take from it. <laughs> Roger Ebert used to hold this uh, oh, this annual class, and they would always study these movies. And one of the exercises was to uh, if they could improve on a classic. And for the longest time, they said, no, there's no improving on Psycho. And then he said one of his students actually came up with a way to improve it. And it's when you cut, you don't cut out the uh, psychologist's uh, explanation entirely. You cut it short. And what they did is they would cut, he said, if you cut it short on the one line, there were times when she... There were times when it was almost all Mrs. Bates, but he was never entirely Norman. 
And that's when they suggested, yes, if you cut there, you could have even actually improved even on this movie. Scott, um, you, just, you just stepped into my brain. <laughs> well, that, well, I mean, not that. It, it, was, it was, you know, let's thank that, you know, unnamed student, whoever he was, you know, in Ebert's class. But, but that's the thing is that, and that's, and that's also answers the question. It's like, it was the mother. The, and it's like, just like any domineering mother, like, oh, heavens to me, no, no, I would never do such a thing. My goodness. <laughs> and, you know, meanwhile, in, in prior life, they're the most horrible. You know, awful. We see this all the time. Like every, like every, like uh, holy crusader who comes out there. Oh, somebody think of the children, and then meanwhile they're like trashing every other, you know, ethnic group, homosexuals. They in their own private lives, they're like yeah. mm-hmm. they've got like leather chaps and ball gags, and you know they're, they're like yeah, no, and and but it's like the it's like the hypocrisy, the the deflection. Uh, no, I think it was definitely the Mrs. Bates character, and I think the line really speaks to it. I think that there are times when it was almost entirely Mrs. Bates. He was never entirely Norman, which is probably the most unsettling part, is that all throughout the movie, we thought, well, maybe he's kind of pulled in these directions, but we find out, no, he was never entirely in control. Well, it's possible uh, once his mother died that he just fractured. He couldn't mm-hmm. deal with her death. It was quite possibly the first funeral he'd ever been to, and it's quite possible that you know she died as he, you know, and he's still a virgin. So all of this stuff is coming up through his mother. So it's it's quite possible there is no personality. Uh, We're going to take a small break now, and when we come back, we're going to have a brief discussion game as well as our final ratings on Psycho. And now we take a short break. we discuss movies like a book club one of the ways that we like to further examine a film is through the use of a discussion game and tonight's discussion game is something we call truth or jerk i'll state some trivia that could be true or false and our panel will decide whether they whether or not they think it's true or if i'm just being a jerk so (laughs) wow (laughs) yeah Statement number one, because of Psycho, Walt Disney refused to allow Hitchcock to film in Disneyland during the early 60s. Here's a jerk. Uh, Let's just go right down the line. So, uh, Dano. True. True. Scott? Sounds sounds like an urban legend, so I'm going to say jerk. Okay. Cool. I don't know. It's it's so weird. I'm going to say true. Okay. 
Uh, Angelique? Jerk. Okay. And Vaughn? Jerk. That is actually a true statement. God damn it, really? <laughs> See, I remember hearing something about that once, but I was thinking, like, I always thought, like, that couldn't have possibly been actually true, though. Yeah. What? Yeah, apparently Walt Disney thought that the film was so bizarre and so bad and and, and taste that he was like, no, we're not going to allow this guy in the in the in the you know the happiest place on oh, earth. My gosh, what a prude! Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wasn't right. he a Nazi? <laughs> 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 All right. So, truth or jerk, our next one is uh, Paramount, the distributor of the film, made a lot of money for Psycho. Truth or jerk? Dano. I mean, that's kind of, I don't know, that's a weighted question. I mean, they, I guess they kind of did, but Hitchcock came out the better for it. I guess true. I, I, I'm, I'm with Dan on this. I mean, it's a loaded question. Uh, I mean, it, it, had, it had to have made, turned a profit. It had to have recouped its budget. I'm, I'm going to assume Psycho was a, a resounding financial success. Whether you know whether it, it it like whether all of the the executive producers were able to go out and buy a new yacht with it, I don't know. How about our lipstick jerk? Jerk. Okay. How about Yvonne? Truth. It is actually a jerk statement. It was a trick. Son. It was trick yep. statement. it's it's because paramount didn't really believe in the material and they uh because hitchcock was willing to take a pay cut in his salary uh they gave him 60 percent of the profits of the film wow Wow. and and it became his highest grossing film so he made tons of money paramount didn't make so much because they that's the problem, you know. If they don't believe in the material, they they, they thought it was going to be a huge bomb. They're uh, they thought, okay, this movie won't do good this holiday season, but we've got Cinderella coming out, which is the ongoing joke in the movie they do on it. Also, let's not forget Paramount shared distribution on this movie, so they also probably would have made more money if it wasn't also being tossed to Universal in part at the same time. <laughs> All right, let's continue with Truth or Jerk. Uh, Marion was named Mary in the novel, and it was changed in the film because Hitchcock thought it sounded more unique. Truth or Jerk. Dano? I don't know. Truth. Dottie D. Sounds mundane enough, so I'm going to say true. Cool. Wow. How are you stumping me with every question? Damn it. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this is a great podcast. I'm going to go ahead and say True. Angelique. It's been forever since I've read the book and it's back there on my shelf, but I'm not going to be a jerk and go check it. So I'm going to say true. Okay. How about you, Vaughn? True. Okay. Uh, this was, uh, it's actually a jerk. Because Son of a bitch. <laughs> I should have been a jerk. I'm the jerk. I'm the jerk. The, the, so it is true that Marion was named Mary in the novel. But what makes it a jerk statement is the fact that uh, it wasn't because Hitchcock so- uh, thought it sounded unique. It was because two people in in uh, Phoenix were named Mary Crane. So they didn't want to like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so they changed it to Marion Crane because they didn't find anybody with that name in the city. <laughs> Crazy, huh? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so we'll do one. 
Question. Vera Miles wore a wig because she wanted to match her sister's hair in the film. So Ly- Lilo uh, wore a wig to in order to match Marion. Who's her jerk? We'll start with Dano. Um, jerk. Okay. Uh, Scott? Jerk. All right. Uh, Cole? Well, I'll tell you, I appreciate that I believe that they're sisters in the movie. That's, that's really key. I hate when siblings don't, siblings don't resemble each other in a flick. Drives me crazy. I'm going to go with True. Angelique? There was way too much forehead going on in that part, so I'm going to say jerk. <laughs> Five head. And then, are you fun? Uh, jerk. I'm losing okay. this like crazy, so why not? No, it, you guys that answered jerk are correct. It ah, is a jerk ah. statement. But she, she did wear a wig, but it wasn't because she wanted they did, wanted her to match her sister's hair. The reason is because the actress had to shave her hair from a previous movie, so she didn't have any hair. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, of course, truth or jerk. Uh, uh, you I, guys played one I got one for you. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. My record on this is actually pretty consistent yeah. on how I did, which is not very good, I don't think. Okay. Okay, because, okay, truth or jerk, okay. I'm actually on an episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I got a very basic and well-known question about Psycho wrong. Truth or jerk? <laughs> okay. I'm going to say true. <laughs> You'd be right. <laughs> I was, I was, a, I was a phone a friend for uh, for my buddy, and uh, so there, it's it's on the net. <laughs> I it took me years to live down the humiliation of it. He, oh, he was going oh for my money. God, Scott! I know, yeah, see, so you think I'm so smart? <laughs> this, That's a, a devastating very, story. It was a very horrible. basic question too, and I had them call me up. Uh, it's like okay, here it is, and it's a it's even a question we even touched on uh, <laughs> when it, tonight, yeah. And so I was like kind of smirking back here. It's the score, Bernard Herman's score. I love Bernard Herman, and wow. they asked him, you know, which score is scored entirely with strings. We know it's Psycho now, uh, for some, and it was hmm. like down to Psycho and Vertigo or something like that. Psycho it was like Psycho, Vertigo, the Birds, and something else, and. Uh, there's a shot of there, there. They say, and Meredith Vieira is calling me and stuff, and it's on the it's on the net and everything. I panicked and blurted out the wrong answer, and I knew it was wrong when I was saying it. Oh, oh no! Even worse. That's the thing is that I just got scared, and I and I knew the answer was wrong. And I went vertigo, and he says, "says Are you sure?" I said, "No, but go for it." And <laughs> That's it. And, and I didn't have a chance to say, wait, did I say vertigo? I meant suck. I didn't have a chance to say that. It was gone. It was done. Uh, oh, and I was no. like, oh my God, I just cost my friend thousands and thousands of dollars. No, he actually went against me. Oh, good. And oh. chose Psycho. The funny thing is, is, is I think they also pulled the audience and they got it wrong too. So that feels a little better. Yeah, but yeah. I knew the answer. I knew it was Psycho. I knew it. And <laughs> I said the wrong thing. I fell into a ball. I'm like, the worst friend ever in the world. I mean, and, uh, to your defense, he, Meredith Vieira is terrifying. 
<laughs> I couldn't imagine how my friend was actually doing it the actually on the show in the audience, but he did pretty good. He actually made it up to twenty five G's. So it was all movie questions. It was it. Fantastic guy. Yeah, and he uh, and he 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 didn't blow it on that question. He blew blew it like a couple questions later. <laughs> <laughs> so getting questions wrong on not to make this about me but just saying in my defense getting questions wrong about psycho a movie i've seen 20 times pretty standard <laughs> but in in your defense none of this had to do with with stuff directly from the movie i mean you probably would have gotten like plot things you know like I what, don't what know. book I love was on bernard the bookshelf in the third I, act of scene one <laughs> i love bernard herman and i had you know studied this in cl- in classes and everything i had no excuse <laughs> <laughs> all right i didn't ha- we're not going to have time to do for truth or jerk but yeah, i thought it was interesting is that anthony perkins actually uh received for his salary for his performance in psycho forty thousand dollars <laughs> Wow. Which is the exact amount that was embezzled. Oh wow! That's, I, I thought that was that really I, cool. That I did not know. Yeah. So uh, that was that would have been a truth one, but we just didn't have time for it. So oh, that uh, was Angel- a good one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I gave you the answer, we can all like. It's like, <laughs> uh, uh, like everybody else answered true, and I'll be like, "Nah, it's bullshit." <laughs> 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 Keep it going. <laughs> So, Angelique, will you take us into the next thing? Well, now is the time on our Film Jerks broadcast where we decide to rate the movie as we see fit. And we have a three-tier rating system. We've got like it, which means, heck yeah, watch this movie, tell your friends. If you're close with your mom, put it on tomorrow. We've got one bit, which is, no, get it out of my face and my feet. Never terrible awful and then you've got maybe which means maybe you didn't like it upon your first viewing but you'll give it another shot or two so gentlemen we'll start with Dale. how do you feel i feel i mean of course you have to watch it i mean this is the yeah it's a museum piece i mean this is it's kind of like you know seeing the mona lisa you want to see horror you watch psycho you want to see pacing in a film you watch psycho you want to see how it's done you watch psycho man it's just it's what it is thumbs up <laughs> beautiful Scott. oh it's classic it's it's it would be ridiculous to say anything else it's just it's a, it's a it's a wonderful film there's reasons why people some people wonder if it's actually perfect i mean it's because it's pretty darn near so i'm gonna say of course yes absolutely awesome cool Lump it. I'd rather watch I'd rather watch Vince Vaughn masturbate for an hour and forty-eight minutes. Isn't that what he does in every movie that in every like comedy that he's in these days? Or no, it's as I, I, that's what the internship was, right? That is my dream, Cole, okay? No, I actually Vince Vaughn, I love Vince Vaughn, but he, he was involved in a horrible remake of this. I yeah, no, obviously it's it's a classic. It's, it's one of those movies, like, when I'm on the set, people probably, I mean, my friends are always coming up to me going, oh, I'm, I'm so amazed how you reference this shot from Psycho, or I'm so amazed how you reference this shot from Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street. It, but, but I don't, because Psycho is just part of me. 
you know, I reference shots from Buffalo 66 or high art. You know, when I'm on a set trying to make a unique horror movie, I'm not referencing horror movies. I'm trying to find my own way in because those movies just exist. It's like Daniel said, you know, some people may roll their eyes, but this is in a way a Mona Lisa of cinema. And it's just there. It is what is it what it is. It's a masterpiece. And uh, with the exception of some, uh, just an explanation that, that kills some of the mystery at the tail end of it, it is a perfect film, man. It is. Brilliant. I totally agree. Vaughn? Uh, yeah, like it. You know, I mean, the, the caveat is that because after Hitchcock's death, Paramount went bug nuts and just went you know, and released three sequels, which are all kind of awful in their own way. Uh, a tele- an 80s television series with Bud Court, which is kind of unique because it only got to the pilot phase. Uh, and then a TV series within the last handful of years, which is fun. And it has some some really interesting uh, ideas on it. Um, but I would say kind of avoid all that, except maybe the, the last television series that just came out. And just strictly stay with this film as its own overall like bubble don't you know if you really love this film just go watch other films of the same time period and see how hitchcock was able to like outdo them all even though i love william castle uh and i like a lot of the films of the uh the early 60s uh, late 50s early 60s um, like exploitation and uh kind of cheapy films a lot of them especially the ones where they're about 70 minutes long fantastic when they're 70 minutes long because they they somehow get everything right in there and it's great it's a great little nugget but this film, you know, for its length, and it is a long film for a film in 1960, uh, it's it's awesome. It encapsulates everything that the people were doing at the time. And with Hitchcock's kind of masterfulness of the camera and the way he shot everything, the way he storeboarded everything, it just, it's beautiful. And it should be seen if you're a person who's just getting, if you're a young person who's just getting into film, it should be one of the 10 films you see first. Yes, you know, yes. And, and then dig deeper into the stuff of the same time period because you 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 get a really good feel of how things were put together. It's a real nice film school as well of how everything was sh- about how a film can be put together properly. Right. And our own bowtie jerk. <laughs> well, I went in trying to hate this film. I really did try to hate it because I thought it would be overrated. And I, I thought uh, there were some things that I didn't like. And I was like, yeah, I'm vindicated. But there's just too much good stuff in this film that I, I couldn't hate it. And I couldn't even give it a maybe. It was just good enough for me to say I like this film, even if it does have one or two scenes that I it just kind of didn't excite me as much as I had hoped for. But that might have been because I went into the film trying to hate it, and I couldn't. Uh, how many times had you seen this beforehand? <laughs> beforehand? I would yeah. say twice. Okay, I was going to say, like, because it almost sounded like this was my first time viewing, and I was like, wow, really? <laughs> you know? like, that's so that would be that would have been, like, so exciting, but it's not, so... <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to watch because lately my big kick has been to try to throw out all the things that I've had, like, like CGI is always going to be bad. I tried to throw that out of my life. So I try to look at films differently, like not almost like it is my first time. 
but and so I tried to go into this film trying to hate it, and I was trying to nitpick on it. And there were a few scenes, like for example, the whole when Anthony Perkins is like flailing around with Sam. I thought that was just overly acted. Him just like <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Your face was really classic. Yeah. <laughs> Again, as I was watching through it, it was like, wow, this is really clever. And oh, I didn't notice this. And we talked about it on the show where we talked about the shadows. There were some things where, like, if you look at the bars dividing up in the windows, they look like bars in a in a jail cell. <laughs> and it was like, oh, that this is kind of cool. Oh, wait, I'm supposed to hate this film. <laughs> <laughs> and then also having you guys talk about the film in in such wonderful detail. The, the fact that we could dive into the scenes a lot and it gives me a better understanding. And once I get a better understanding of films, it's hard not to love a film, even if it is like the worst piece of junk film. If we talk about it and, and analyze it uh, properly, I think I, I can still like a film, even if it is a piece of junk, film. you know, yeah. and you guys just really did a good job of discussing this film. So, you know, as a, as a friend of mine once said, every film has a biggest fan and every film has an utmost hater, mm. you know? So, True. yeah, but so we're going to talk about Leonard part six now. No, just kidding. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> we saw that in the theater, in the theater. I remember, I remember when that was like the worst thing about Bill Cosby. all right so uh what we're gonna do now is we're gonna talk about where we can find all of us when we're not here talking about movies we're gonna start out with our lipstick jerk angelique where can we find you when you're not on film jerks um, really, you can just find me on Facebook right now. I'm trying to get a few things off the ground, but my geographic location makes it really difficult to do that. <laughs> so I'll be skulking around the Facebook group, um, the, the Film Jerks group. So <laughs> that's me. <laughs> uh, how about you, Vaughn? Where can we find more about you? Well, um, I have a couple places where I uh, let where people let me talk. One is my podcast motion picture master which is motionpicturemaster.wordpress.com the latest episode hopefully will come out by the time this comes out in the next six or seven months will be on orgy of the of the dead and uh twice judas two 60s uh films one a spaghetti western and one a nudie cutie um i'm also allowed occasionally to talk on another podcast called podcast mania which is podcastmania yeah.com or podcastmania dot wordpress.com we are currently on a hiatus due to my due to the cut the head host charlie bashing his head into his own computer um and still trying to fix pull the keys out of his skull um besides all that that's pretty much where you can find me uh, i troll every part of the world um as best i can and if you find me shove me you may get a dollar that's all i have to say <laughs> <laughs> i'll buy that for a dollar mm-hmm uh, oh, God, don't do that. <laughs> cool. Where can we find you? Yes, sir. You can find me on Shadows and Lovers Productions on Facebook. There will be a website coming, uh, you know, but Facebook is contrary to popular belief, quite fantastic. Guess what? Every time you're online, you're being monitored. So if you think uh, deactivating your Facebook account is going to change anything, 
it's doubtful. I have a movie on Amazon Prime, the last great horror movie. I'm very proud of it. Uh, I, I stand by it. It's uh, my finest hour as an artist to date. Also working on a film called Rise, starring two of the panel members here tonight, uh, both of whom are, I'm, I'm hoping to show a, a side of them that people have never seen because they're both extremely talented. And I just uh, want to thank you, Paul, for inviting me. I really needed to talk to some friends tonight. So this was great, man. Fantastic. Uh, and then how about you, Mr. Scotty D? You don't see me too much these days. Um, I have my website still, but it hasn't been updated in a while. But you know what? There's lots of stuff there, so get reading. It's uh, moviocrity.com. You can also catch my old web series, Moviocrity. Best place to see all the episodes of that is at vimeo.com slash channel slash moviocrity. How about you, Daniel? Uh, I guess best place would be either the film jerks thing. If I just, I mostly troll. I'm just, I lurk around everywhere. Um, <laughs> Nike.com, I guess would be the best place, but I don't even, hell, I haven't even checked that website in a while. It's, I got so much crap going on. Just <laughs> Nike.com. I think there's a link somewhere you can find me or go to Bandcamp and look up the Nike. That's... <laughs> I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm just forgetting all my links and stuff. But if you go to anywhere there, you'll end up probably finding me or just start talking about He-Man or Dungeons and Dragons or something. And I, just, I cannot repress the nerd. It will emerge. <laughs> kind of like whenever you said, you know, you'd buy that for a dollar. And I'm about to I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> That's how you'd find me in the wild. <laughs> To learn more about Film Jerks, we can be found at the Film Jerks Facebook group. Go there and you can uh, vote on our upcoming discussions. And you can also have a lot more discussion about the films that we talk about. We usually put up some interesting facts, some music, and sometimes we play occasional games here and there. All part of our Facebook group. So remember, because at Film Jerks, we're not always jerks to the films that we discuss. But when it comes to movies, we don't jerk around. Oh, yes! yes! Now, everybody, let's end the show by doing the shower <laughs> sound. Okay, ready? Why <laughs> do <laughs> we sound like the pigs from that other movie? <laughs> you guys sound like Leatherface with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs>